Alrighty, so Jesus and the storm in Matthew 8. One of the great passages of uh, the Gospels. Verses 23 to 27. If you don't know this story, you're really new to the Gospels. It's one of the most commonly known and cherished stories. Let's read it together before we get started. Matthew 8, 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? So the disciples followed Jesus into the boat and while they were traveling across, the reason that they were going is to get to the other side. Why did the disciples cross the sea? To get to the other side. Not to fish, not for a a recreational uh, voyage, but to get to the other side and a storm came. Now, you know, in this story, there's no indication of what caused the storm, but the whole Bible is filled with, with declarative statements that God controls storms. God is the one who covers the heavens with clouds and sends rain to the earth, Psalm 147.8. He causes his wind to blow and waters to flow, Psalm 47.18. He says, Psalm 148.8 says that the clouds and the stormy wind obey his commands. And Psalm 89.9 says, you rule over the surging sea. And I could give you 30 more passages, but that wouldn't prove anything because these four have been sufficient. So God makes storms and God made this storm and he made it on purpose and the timing of it was perfect just as all things God does the timing is perfect. The boat was being swamped by the waves and Jesus was asleep. That's a most surprising statement. It's supposed to be surprising to us. Jesus was very unpredictable. Usually it's because of something he does or something he says. Here he surprises us by sleeping on a boat that's being rocked and swamped by waves in a storm. How can you sleep while that's going on? The disciples scurried around trying to deal with the storm A number of them were sailors, and they all lived around the sea, so they're all used to the water. Some of them, this was what they did every day. 
But at some point, with this storm, they'd done all they could do and it was obviously not enough. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. When you're in an airplane and it goes through turbulence, what are you told? How do you know if you're really in danger? You're supposed to look at the stewardess or the steward, if that's what they call the guys that are on the staff there. If they're calm, everything's okay. If they're in a panic, then you should panic too, right? Well, here, these men are seasoned sailors, and they're in a panic. This is a bad storm. This is a bad situation. They are about to all die. Only a few times in my life, of almost seven decades, I felt like I was possibly going to die. This is an intense moment we have before us in this passage. Jesus saves them from the danger, from their perceived death. But he doesn't save them from the trauma of feeling like they were going to die. He doesn't even comfort them in it. He doesn't say, oh, it's going to be okay. Relax. Take it easy. I've got it all under control. It's okay. No, he rebukes them. Verse 26. He says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, there is a very common word for fear in the Greek language. It's a word that actually we get our word phobia from. It's the word phobos. That's the one almost always used for fear. That's not the word that's used here. This word, you know, it's possible to act courageously while you're feeling fear inside. In fact, virtually all heroic acts, if you ask the person, they'll say they were afraid. But yet it didn't stop them from acting in the right, wise way. But this word is not about that. This word is about cowardice, timidity, about panicking and cowering in the face of danger. It's actually a word that we talked about a few weeks ago in Revelation 21.8, which is the only other place outside this story in the New Testament that this word is used. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns, I'm sorry, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's the only other place it's used. You see, it's human to feel fear in the face of danger. What Jesus is talking about here is the kind of fear where you lose your head, being immobilized by fear. The kind of fear which people, which makes people run their car into a tree because a deer jumped out in front of them in the, on the road. 
makes people fall to their death from a ladder because a bee came close to them. It's the kind of fear which takes over your life, which drowns out everything else that's going on. I love the fact here that Jesus rebukes the disciples before he rebukes the storm. Was, why? Why? Was Jesus out of control? Was he so angry with them that he couldn't wait till the storm was still before he spoke his mind to them? No. I also love the simple de- this similar detail that Jesus was sleeping in the boat during the storm. Was he disinterested in the disciples? Did, they, did he have no concern for them? Was he out of touch with their needs? The point in both of these things, it seems to me, is that contrary to his disciples, Jesus was not at all in a panic. He was not afraid of the storm. He didn't let it disturb his sleep. And he didn't even feel the need to calm the storm before making his point about the littleness of their faith. By his example, he's teaching them not to react with panic when facing fearsome things. He's teaching them to always recognize in every situation that he is the big thing not the danger not the disappointment not the loss, not the failure not the sin even he says to them you men of little faith now they were doing what almost everyone would do in that situation When is it time to fear if it's not when you think you're going to die? But in the text, there are six evidences, at least six evidences, that the disciples' faith was small. One, they were debilitated by fear. Two, they went to Jesus last instead of going to him first. Three, they went to Jesus in a panic instead of humbly. Four, they acted as if Jesus didn't know about their problem. Five, they acted as if Jesus didn't have their best interests in mind. As the the story in Mark says in verse 38, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And six, they were surprised that that Jesus could help them. You see, Jesus wanted them to trust him even when they were in danger and even when he was asleep. Jesus also talks about having little faith a few chapters later in Matthew 17, 20 and 21, when he says to them, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move. You see, it's not that the disciples had no faith in this situation. They did have a tiny mustard seed of faith. And in the end, it moved mountains of water. How do we see their faith in this story, even though it's small? They came to Jesus, eventually. They gave up on their ability to do it themselves and they turned to him for help. 
that was a lot better than cursing God as the boat sank. And then, in verse 30, uh, second half of verse 26, he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the, the grace, you see the power of God here, right on display, but there's also the grace of God. Amazingly, he didn't say to them, I've put up with you long enough. If your faith is so small, I'm not even going to help you. You can get out of this mess yourself. Of course, I'm in no danger because I can walk on water. He calmed the storm. He didn't refuse their request to help them in spite of their tiny faith. But of course, along with his help, he also gave his feedback, his challenge. You see, Jesus is building his disciples' faith through sending them trials, then showing himself to them in answer to their need, through teaching them, through rebuking them. He's working on them patiently and persistently, just like he works on us. Verse 27, And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Now the disciples are impressed by the right thing. Now they see that there's something bigger than the storm in their situation. Bigger than their danger. Someone who's been with them the whole time. Instead of standing in awe of the storm, they're standing in awe of Jesus, the storm stopper. And this was the goal all along. For Jesus to get bigger and bigger in their view of the world so that the storms of life got smaller and smaller in comparison. Now, we're in the same boat as the disciples. As we go along in our lives, storms arise often without warning, and often way beyond what we can handle. There's little storms, like when we have to wait for something, or like when we don't understand why something happens, or like when he withholds things that we think we need. But there's also big storms, when he allows heartbreaking loss or he allows one crisis after another to crash into our lives. And God rules over all these storms, just like he ruled over the storms with the disciples. He sends the clouds and rain. He causes the wind to blow and the waters to flow. He rules over the surging sea. And we're just like his disciples. We have little faith too. We go to Jesus last instead of first. We go to Jesus in a panic instead of humbly. We act as if Jesus doesn't know about our problem. We act as if he doesn't have our best interest in mind. We forget that he's in control. We panic and worry and get anxious. 
We even get depressed and feel sorry for ourselves. We even give up sometimes. We get angry. We blame the storms for our anguish. Or we blame God. But the fact is Jesus sends the storms because He loves us. Because He wants to teach us how to trust Him. And not rely on ourselves any longer. The fact is Jesus has things to do in us that we're not always interested in Him doing. But they're good things. Storms expose what's in our hearts. The unbelief, the idolatry, the self-reliance, the pride. But it's tempting to spend our life trying to avoid storms. To cry out, be still my circumstances, instead of crying out, be still my soul. To focus on changing what's going on out there, instead of changing what's going on in here. It's easy to dread the storm instead of dreading what we should be dreading, and that's the unbelief and how it manifests itself in our lives. If we dread the possibility of being cowardly or embittered or demoralized when future storms come, that's good. Because if that's what we're afraid of, there's something we can do about it. We can't prevent storms from coming. You can try. You can buy all the insurance in the world and set yourself up and all. You know, but the guy with the bigger barns tried to do that. It just doesn't work. God said, this very night I will require your soul of you. That kind of stuff doesn't work. It doesn't, you can't prevent storms. But you can work to be ready for storms and prepare your soul for it. But what can we do to prepare? How can we change? How can we learn to trust God in the face of storms? Two things. The first is, we can learn to be faithful in the small things. We can work on trusting God when the light turns red, right? When we're yearning for it to stay green when we're going through. We can uh, trust God when we're, we're uh, driving to a store and it closed five minutes ago. We can trust God when someone's rude to us or when we get a cold or when our child doesn't do what he or she's supposed to do. The little things, the little disappointments, we can tr learn to trust God in those things. That, that's, that's a spiritual battle. You know, because they don't wreak havoc in our souls, it's even easy to ignore them. When we feel discouraged about our lives, or about our futures, or about our society. It's just so easy to indulge in that discouragement. And, or find something else to take our minds off it. Or um, distract us. But the fact is, we've got to fight for the hope that we ought to have 
with the weapons of spirit that God has given us and not see it as just a little thing. Tools like the promises of God. We've got to start by engaging in spiritual warfare in the little battles of life. Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So when, when we deal with these little things in life, we are setting precedent and setting the stage for how we're going to deal with the big things that crash into our lives. The tragedies. If we can't handle the little rain showers, how are we going to ever handle the hurricanes? When the storm is raging, it's too late to prepare for it. You can't build your house on the rock in the middle of a flood or a storm. The time to prepare is when the sun is shining and the weather is fine. But the problem is when there is a break in the storm and there's peace and everything's going along fine, that is intoxicating. It's the time when we're tempted to be lulled into thinking that storms aren't actually going to come. Do not worry about the storms of the future. Just enjoy and rel the relaxation of the present. You know, the letter to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. This was the church that was suffering the least. They weren't being persecuted. They were in an affluent city where ever, the economy was booming. And yet that church was the church that Jesus said to, to, to whom Jesus said, you say, I am rich, I am prospering, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wicked, I'm sorry, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So we need to realize that when things are going fine and all the storms are small, that's the time to be alert instead of relax. Be alert and build your house upon the rock. The second thing we can do is pray for the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The twelve disciples were very ordinary men. More like fishermen, which many of them were, than scholars or government leaders. And all through the Gospels, it seems like they were doing the wrong thing. Not always, but mostly. Panicking in the face of the storm like here. Thinking about themselves, competing for the top spot. Not catching what Jesus was saying. Taking their eyes off Christ. Shooing the kids away from Jesus falling asleep during crucial prayer, thinking the kingdom is coming now, rebuking Jesus for talking about the cross, scattering and even denying they knew him when he was arrested, hiding in fear from the authorities after his crucifixion, 
hardly ever praised by Jesus, often rebuked by Jesus. How many times Jesus said to them, how long shall I put up with you? How many times did he call to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe? How many times he called them, O men of little faith? They were just like us. Until, until the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Now, we have the record of what Peter was like, I mean, what the disciples were like in the boat before Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit was given, and their littleness of faith. We have no record of the disciples on a boat after the Holy Spirit was given, but we do have something pretty close. In Acts 27, we have the story of the Apostle Paul on a boat in a storm after the Holy Spirit had been given to them all. And what a story it is. Here this Holy Spirit filled apostle reacted very differently from the apostles and the disciples in Matthew 8 to an even more severe storm. A storm which held them in its grip for two weeks in the Mediterranean. A storm which sent the ship's sailors into full-blown panic. Here Paul was on the ship, a prisoner. And yet not only did he not panic, he ministered to the soldiers who were guarding him and to to the sailors of the ship, comforting them, encouraging them, guiding them, helping supply their needs. Because there was no panic for Paul. And that was possible. Not because Paul is a better apostle than all the others. At this stage, when when these disciples were panicking on the boat, I can tell you, Paul was even worse. Right? At that moment, wherever Paul was, he was even worse than than the other disciples. But the Holy Spirit's coming into his life transformed him. He and the other apostles became men of great wisdom and stability, men who did not flinch in the face of danger, men who stood up courageously to the very ones before whom they had cowered before the Holy Spirit was given. They sang hymns of joy even when they'd been beaten and imprisoned. They gave vibrant testimony to Jesus all over the world. They labored tirelessly, loving not only their friends, but even their enemies. And each of them willingly died for the cause of Christ. My point is that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit too. And God wants it. And he wants us to seek it. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks 
and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if your son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? In the midst of our storms, Jesus often seems like He's asleep, disengaged, uninvolved. He didn't look powerful sleeping there in the boat. It's easy to count him out. It's easy to not factor him in. Of course, that sleeping Jesus, that seemingly irrelevant Jesus, is actually much more powerful, much more dangerous than the greatest storm. Though the superiority of his power is often hidden. And his interest in his people is often hidden. And his readiness to help is often hidden. He promised it over and over again. And he asks us to trust him. To trust that he'll do what he promised. He rebukes the disciples because they believed the impression they got from what they could see. Instead of believing what he told them, they walked by sight, not by faith. You see, when Jesus is not in view, it's no wonder people get demoralized and panicky and bitter. With Jesus in the picture, though, this world isn't such a terrible place after all. And its troubles can be faced because there's a big, powerful Jesus in the boat with us. A Jesus who loves us very much, even if sometimes he seems to be napping. Jesus wants us to wake him up. Have you ever rebuked someone? for not waking you up when they should have woken you up. They may have even been trying to be sensitive to you. But they should have known, you got to wake me up when that happens. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. You should have woken me up. Part of the disciples' littleness of faith is that they left Jesus sleeping. Instead of rousing him with their petitions... They left him over there catching a few Z's while they were trying to handle things themselves. Listen to Psalm 44. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. That's what the disciples should have been doing. He gave them this prayer in case they were ever in this situation and they didn't pray it. 
Most of the time the reason Jesus is sleeping is because we haven't woken him up with our prayers. They thought that the problem was that Jesus wasn't paying attention to them. But as it turns out, what was really going on is that they weren't paying attention to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. We praise you for all the times that you have used it in our lives as we've gained perspective through it about the storms that rage in our own circumstances and how worthy of being trusted you are. And Lord, we can't wait to hear the thousands and millions of stories of how this story brought strength and encouragement to so many of your people down through the ages when we are with them in paradise. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us now. That you would refresh our perspective. Because Lord, we so easily fall into the same trap. We forget that you're bigger, much bigger than any storm. And we thank you, Lord, for the storm that you send us. Because we need to learn to trust in you. And pray that you'd help us in the midst of them. To learn to trust. And not to be fooled. And blinded. And deceived by the devil into forgetting. That storms are always small when they're compared to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.